Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Well, hey there, friends. Welcome to Big Season 3. Something like 84 shows aired their final episodes this year, folks. Hell, even Maury bit the dust. Ellen danced her ass into oblivion. And who's the last man standing? Me, baby. Me. Yes, you too, Chester. No one forgot about you, by God. That's right, buddy. Twin Peaks only made it two seasons. I remember. He's very proud of himself. Well, come on in, friend. Enough showboating. Let's get down to business. Mmm. All right. Marlboro be thy name. Tonight we've got two tales of folks too curious for their own damn good. See, sometimes what's seen cannot be unseen. So smoke them if you got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, my friends, because your old buddy Drew Blood has a tale to tell. But first, the rigmarole. Uh, you're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu. Sign up today. You'll get instant access to the whole enchilada including hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating all the way back to 2012. Thank you for your support. Got a story or two you'd like to hear on the show? Send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, we'll do business. In tonight's first tale, we join Jamie, a man down on his luck and a little too curious about his secretive neighbor. So, without further delay, I give you, from author Jonathan Lowe, Repler. The silent darkness felt almost palpable, as if pressed by the intrusion. After the door swung shut behind him, he stretched out face down on the mattress. Although listening, he could only hear the steady rhythmic pulse of blood in his head now. His calves and feet throbbed with fatigue. Reaching beside him, he pulled part of the ragged blanket over his legs. Then he drifted into fitful sleep. He woke on his back, staring up at the spotted plaster ceiling. It must still have been early, because he could hear his neighbor in the adjacent apartment making breakfast. The sound of silverware was distinct but distant. It summoned to him dormant memories of once familiar faces. He did not know where or if those same faces gathered, but only the year 2002, which was the last year he had known family. Now the memory, though, oppressed him, accentuated by the loss of his job at the Pearson Street Day-Night Foods, and he fought it off by thinking of the old man on the other side of the wall, did he really know anything about him? They had spoken only three times in the six weeks they had shared the duplex. I'm Jamie, he had told the man, at least three times his age, soon after moving into the ramshackle house with only his mattress and a suitcase of old clothes. And I'm Rippler, the old man had replied in a voice like sandpaper, before scurrying inside. Subsequent conversations had been no more significant. Jamie sat up and shivered. He tried to picture Mr. Rappler sitting in his identically tiny kitchen, close to the wood stove, 
not wearing his thick black overcoat. It took more than a bit of imagination. He had never seen him without that coat of his. Always, and in any weather, the old man trudged the city streets as if compelled. Not that there weren't others, of course. Homeless derelicts who moved with instinctive aimlessness down alleys, pausing at trash can fires to warm their calloused hands. But he wondered, glancing about the room curiously, what it would be like to be that old and still have only this. He got up and approached the wall listening. There was still movement over there, but no longer in the kitchen. He decided that Mr. Rappler was preparing himself for his morning stroll. No doubt Social Security allowed him the eccentricity, perhaps with the help of the Salvation Army. And it was possible that he was covered by insurance and Medicare, although he seemed healthy enough with all that walking. At least he was spared of trying to survive on an endless string of minimum wage stints as a print shop sweeper, groundskeeper, or grocery clerk. Jobs lost inevitably to what Jamie considered personality conflict. Maybe the old man even had connections to relatives or friends somewhere and hadn't been booted free of his family in a not-quite-forgotten past. But when you boiled away all the pretense, that was all it was. Survival. Jamie went into the kitchen and opened the stove grate. Scooping some soot and nails off the bottom with his hand, he shoved several jagged pieces of wood into the opening. Then he tore a dozen pages out of a National Geographic from a stack of them he had obtained at the mission. Rogue wave rising over an enormous trough breaks over to supertanker S.O. Netherland, loaded with Persian Gulf crude oil off the Cape of Good Hope, one caption read. His eyes tracked in the slanted morning light. Breath misted in front of him. Preparing to strike a match, Jamie heard a voice. Faint emanations from Mr. Rappler talking to himself again. He couldn't make out the words, but the tone was just perceptibly parental. He crouched into the pantry, placing his ear against the particle board panel which separated the two pantries, and thought he heard the words, Not much longer now before a door closed, but he couldn't be sure. The sound was unnaturally hollow, as though through a tunnel, and then, because Mr. Rappler was gone, the house returned to its usual cold silence. He spent the day at the employment office, applying for what benefits might still be left to him. The place was filled with mostly bored young blacks wearing jeans, although there were occasional executive types in suit and tie who sat, it seemed to Jamie, as if they were above it all. What eye contact was made was brief. One fat white woman with too much lipstick and a red scarf drawn over her bun of hair played solitaire across two folding chairs. A man in a Stetson leaning back and studying the fly-specked rows of fluorescence overhead, idly tapping a pull cue case beneath his boot. And yet Jamie lingered until closing before lifting the lapels of his worn leather jacket against the bleak and already dimming skyline. Irritable at having been offered a tech school grant to study welding instead of either a job or benefits, he walked westward, glancing back over his shoulder compulsively. The downtown buildings reflecting the crimson sunset seemed to stand obliquely, as if unwilling to face that abandoned zone of poverty, the slums and tenements of the indignant. Down the elevated bypass, which swathed across the perimeters of the West End, whisked carloads of city workers, their destination the untainted promontory of the middle class. From a hundred ramps and back-road parking lots, the glittering python had been summoned, but already it had become segmented as the bulk of the snake-like scales reflecting the dying sun was shunted north. Soon the stilted ribbon of concrete was thrummed only intermittently as Jamie walked under it. Returning hurriedly to the apartment, Jamie caught glimpses of street people, their shadows stretched in front of them in the growing gloom, 
Exhaust puttered from solitary cars rove in narrow back streets. Smoke rose from chimneys and mouths. Two scarfed black men stood framing the rusted Coca-Cola sign on the front of the barred-up Polly Superette, slowly rocking and staring, their words muffled, unintelligible. Nearer his street now, Jamie saw him, Mr. Rappler in his big black overcoat. The old man moved methodically, stepping over the broken and buckling sidewalk. Then he paused at a grate near the corner to let the hem of his coat billow slightly in the rising warmth. Was he off on another trek? Jamie hesitated, but decided not to follow. That night he ate at the rescue mission at the end of the street. The neon cross outside sputtered Jesus saves against the darkness. First, everyone listened to Brother Shoemaker's sermon on the evils and sins of alcohol. Then afterward, they were served meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and corn donated by an Eastside A.M.P. because the cans had begun to rust. It tasted good, though. None of the men, although mostly transients, ever grumbled. Back in the apartment, Jamie climbed the ladder into the attic through the trap door in the kitchen ceiling hoping to find wood not essential to the skeleton framework of the house. He had intended to replenish his supply by ripping some boards from the condemned boarding house on the next block, as he had seen a woman pulling a red wagon do. But it was late now, and the previous night he had been forced to walk the six miles home after his boss fired him. He lit a match and held it to one side, squinting. Well, well. The old man had installed a bulb. He reached across the rafter as far as he could and pulled the short chain. The bulb lit, swaying and throwing his distorted shadow behind him. Maybe the old man had electric heat now. He waved the match into smoke and began looking around. The ceiling board sagged. The twin metal chimney pipes were sooty with leaks. What insulation lay between the rafters was stained and smelled moldy. But he saw why the old man had put in the light. Over to one side, near the opposite trap door, were a half dozen low wooden boxes. Beside these were several hand tools on what looked like a restaurant chopping block. There was a claw hammer, a pair of pliers, a chisel, and a hacksaw. Crawling along the rafters, he edged closer. His shadow reached it sooner. Poised carefully, the light behind him now, he stretched to pull free one of the box lids. Then he breathed into his hands and slid beside it. At first, he thought there was nothing inside. He put his arm into the opening and came out with a handful of straw. Something moist dewed the pale strands. He smelled it and returned it to the box, disgusted. Then he opened another box. It too was empty except for the straw. Suddenly he heard a door open somewhere below. Mr. Rappler's apartment. He reached behind him and pulled the chain. The darkness which rushed around him felt thick and close, almost cloying. Mr. Rappler walked into the kitchen directly below. He could hear the old man breathing heavily, as if in pain. For a long time, just standing there, breathing, was he looking up at the attic trap door? But now Mr. Rappler was fumbling in the sink. There was the sound of silverware again. Something was taken out of the pantry. A meal was being prepared. After a few minutes, he went into the other room and a rustling followed like a paper sack being inverted. Rappler began to mumble to himself again. Or was he alone? Jamie resisted the urge to bend closer and began sliding backward along the rafters. Touching Rappler's chimney in passing, he discovered it warm. Had it been burning all along? Gingerly, he let himself down into his kitchen, thinking that tomorrow he would find firewood. For tonight, he would burn the National Geographics.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The next morning was the same. Mr. Rappler was up early and out by 8 o'clock. Jamie watched him walking away along the uneven slabs with quick short steps, the lapels of his coat drawn up beneath his ears in protection. Where was he going? Considering it, Jamie realized he had never seen the old man at the mission. Jamie burned the remaining magazines, washed himself, and changed clothes. Through his kitchen window, he saw Mr. Rappler turn the far corner, his gait slow but energetically steady and looking like a mannequin being trotted along invisibly. Unable to find distraction or any comfort in the opportunity, Jamie made his decision as a way of relieving his anxiety. He lowered the trap door and climbed into the attic. Hesitantly then, he crawled across to the other side, intently listening but why was he so careful? Surely there was no one in the house but him. He pushed on the opposite trap. It squealed and he stopped. Through a two-inch opening, he could see into the kitchen now. There were dishes everywhere. Cordwood was stacked in one corner about hip high. In the open grate, he saw several embers glowing dully on a bed of white ash. Another chopping block was propped in the sink, with an oval stain across it from the dripping faucet. Carefully, he pushed the trap down so he could see into the next room. An unmade bed and a round table with an aquarium near the center. As he suspected, the apartment was empty. He forced himself to descend. His heart quickened at the prospect at being caught. But what could the old man do? Call the police? He didn't have a phone. Jamie grinned feebly. If he wanted, he could clean the place out, chuck his mattress, and check into the YMCA. Looking around, however, he decided there was probably nothing worth stealing except the wood. In the living room, he switched on the light. It certainly was warm, he thought noting the filament space heater which stood beside one discolored wall. He stepped over the scattered newspapers to the card table and put his hand into the aquarium. The straw at the bottom was also spotted, damp. Four other aquariums, their glass lids ajar, lined the hardwood floor. He went back into the kitchen not knowing what to do. In the silence, the old battered frigid air which in Jamie's apartment was used to store wood, coughed into a wheezing hum. He grasped the rusted handle firmly and pulled it open. At first, he didn't know what he was looking at. Then the smell hit him. Beneath a 25-watt appliance bulb and stretched across two bent wire mesh shelves lay the bloody hindquarters of a freshly killed animal wrapped loosely in plastic. By the feet, he guessed dog. Blundering back into the stove, 
He also saw that below this were various fruits and vegetables, carrots, onions, bananas, oranges, and apples. None of these were even remotely fresh. Letting the door swing shut, he stooped and turned away, tightly closing his eyes. When he opened them again, he was looking into the grate, where he could see sawed sections of bones propping open the flue. The ash was very white, so white that the image did not fade when briefly he closed his eyes even tighter. He stood looking up at the trap. He was beginning to feel nauseous now. Then, as he was about to ascend, he noticed the closed pantry door. Not wanting to, but feeling compelled, he paused to twist the knob and nudged the door open with his foot. The shelves inside were lined with skulls, canine and feline. Beneath a row of glasses were several stacks of torn magazines, glossy photos of nude women. He kneeled almost involuntarily, reaching for a small skull among others, practically indistinguishable except by shape. The skull of a baby. He turned it over and over in his hands, staring as if at a relic. Then the rush of blood as he stood was accompanied by three sick plunges in his throat, and he dropped it absently. It fell onto a burlap sack and rolled off against the particle board at the back. Had it come to this? He staggered backwards. His chest felt as if someone had hit him. Clutching his throat and looking down, he saw that the vomit-stained sack in the pantry was moving. He glanced quickly around for something, anything, a knife from the sink. He poked it at the sack. The sack flapped once, twice. Angrily, he flailed at it. Again, the burlap seemed to respond to the attack, this time by folding in on itself and emitting a very low mewing sound. Appalled, he lifted it with the knife. Beneath the sack was a bat. Its wings had been cut out, like sails from rigging. The bat had a dog's face, like a Pekingese. It was a vampire. He heard movement in the yard. Glancing out, he saw that it was only a stray dog, emaciated, alone. But the distraction broke his attention and allowed him to flee. He climbed up into the attic frantically and pulled the trap shut behind him. There were the wooden boxes. He scrambled back to his own side, heedless. In his apartment, he paced back and forth from front door to kitchen. Should he go to the police? What would he say? Done with waiting, he decided to confront Mr. Rappler first, or at least to follow him. He traced the route he had seen the old man take down Ferris Street to the train depot. Passing an auto graveyard, he watched as a gray sedan was lowered into the crusher. Beside the giant crane was a hooded man haloed in sparks welding something. Wistfully, Jamie imagined that it might have been him. As morning slipped into afternoon, he found it harder to concentrate on the images troubling him, and he sought company at the Brown Derby pool hall. The Texan from the employment office was there, straddling a worn leather stool, waiting. Smoke drifted lazily. Had the constant need to survive broken Mr. Rappler's sanity? Or, Jamie mused, was it the loneliness at being discarded as no longer productive? Perhaps the old man was only a victim now, like so many who had let dignity slip away one glance at a time. Somehow, though, he knew the explanation was inadequate. He was rationalizing. He left the Brown Derby and went to the YMCA to inquire about a room. The director was curt in dismissing him. Would he try again next week? Would he consider the floor of the gym for tonight? He walked the gray streets for miles. Twilight came on suddenly in imperceptible gradations. Passing a policeman writing a ticket to a teenager in a dark blue Camaro, he paused. But they were arguing now. 
With a contemptuous gesture toward both, he walked on under the cloud-crowded sky. Nearer his apartment, he saw an old alcoholic climbing stairs into a bar, steadying himself on the rail. Through the window of a service station, he saw where a tired attendant sat in a wooden chair, head in hands, with only a credit card imprinter and a symmetrical stack of oil cans visible in the bare room. As he approached the house, his anxiety increased. Should he try to stay at the mission? Brother Shoemaker would be sure to notice him, though. If he appeared too conspicuous, or they were forced to make too much fuss over him, he would surely be labeled as a freeloader. Being unable to blend in with the other transients then, he'd be denied meals in the future. Seeing no light in Mr. Rappler's windows, he went in and found his own room similarly dark and cold. Cursing himself inwardly for not remembering to get wood, he lit a candle and listened at the pantry door. Nothing. Dimly, he imagined himself stealing some of the old man's wood, but the thought of crawling over there again repulsed him. Instead, he glanced up at the trap. Through a minute crevice due to the misalignment of the door, he saw light in the attic. But hadn't he turned it off that morning? Of course he had. His breath caught in his throat. His arms sagged and the candle was gutted. The thin band of light now split the room like a razor. He stood for what seemed a lifetime, listening. But he could hear nothing but the faint sweep of traffic along the distant bypass. Where were those people going, he wondered. Somewhere safe, probably. Safe and warm. Slowly, his hand reached for the dangling chain. He drew the trap down an inch at a time. At least his didn't squeak. He peered up apprehensively. The attic was empty. Even Mr. Rappler's boxes, whatever they might once have contained, were gone. Suddenly he realized that the old man had moved out. He crawled across, pausing now and again to listen, and there cautiously descended into the dark kitchen. A low and now thinly veiled moon illuminated an empty sink. The pantry door was open and murky. He tried to switch, but nothing happened. Perhaps he had taken the light bulbs too, forgetting about the one in the attic. He walked through the living room to the front door. Nothing impeded his progress. No bed, table, or aquariums. He tried the door and found it locked. A double-keyed deadbolt. Returning to the kitchen, he had begun stacking the remaining cordwood across his left arm when he felt it. A slight pull of air. Puzzled, he stopped for a moment, and then horrified, realized he had neglected to lock his own front door. A sound like shuffling, although exaggerated through the traps and the cold conductive medium of the attic, came to him hushed. In terror, he considered the possibility that the reverse might also be true, and numbed by the thought, cradled the wood in his arm like a sleeping baby. Then the silence returned, as if he had just imagined it. Or were they both waiting, listening? Blood hammered his temples, a sluggish throbbing that was enough to erase the feeble sounds of traffic. He clamped his eyes shut and tried to think of a face. His mother's, busy about the stove. His father's, driving him around the block in his striped yellow taxi? No, those images wouldn't hold, kept shifting. He saw instead the blurred faces of street people, faces which appeared on corners for a day or a week that just when you thought you knew them would vanish and be replaced. He saw Mr. Rappler's face too, or what he could remember of it. How old might such a face be? Sixty? Eighty? Eight hundred? He smiled at the thought, but not long. He could hear the mumbling now, distinct, unmistakable. When he realized it was not coming from inside his own head, 
and that something was indeed moving through the attic above him. He dropped the wood back across the pile and went to the front windows, but they were tight, shut on rusted hasps. The handle would not budge. He stepped back and kicked. One pane shattered. Jagged pieces hung from the mildewed frame. He kicked again. This time the frame cracked and another pane exploded into fragments. But the pieces would not fall out. They struck the woven mesh screen and heaped in a pile, like shards of ice and moonlight. The breeze which wafted around chilled him, and he turned. Mr. Rappler's mouth bore a twisted, almost toothless grin where he stood in the middle of the room facing him. His fingers worked on undoing his heavy black coat. Jamie pulled back one fist instinctively. You get out of here, old man! His voice almost pleading. Rappler's smile faded, not really a smile at all. His face seemed suddenly older, old and pathetically tired. I've almost made it, he said hoarsely. But the help I've had isn't enough. You're still sick, Jamie agreed. Whatever help you've had. That's why I've come back to you. To see if I can be like you. Did you turn me in? I should have. Maybe I still will. Will you? The old man asked, opening his coat. Inside, surrounding his thin and haggard frame, as if in protection, were nestled hundreds of bats, hanging wingless, their eyes reflected red dully. Their faces were twisted miniatures of Rappler's own face, piteous but rapacious. As Jamie groped for a piece of jagged glass behind him, they waited for his reply. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You've been listening to Rappler by author Jonathan Lowe. A good reminder not to be such a busybody, particularly when your neighbor's a vampire of sorts. Hell, I'm pretty sure my neighbor's a vampire, but you'll never catch me trying to prove it. I haven't had my rabies shots. A little about the author. Jonathan Lowe is the award-winning author of five novels on Amazon and a new audiobook, Cat on a Cold Tin Roof, Between a Rockford and a Hard Place. Stories in all genres dedicated to Harlan Ellison and Lee Child, and narrated by Mr. Jeff Sturdivant. Jonathan Lowe has been published widely in magazines. He's from Tucson, Arizona, now living in Greenville, South Carolina. Rappler was heard on the Pseudopod Horror Channel, and he's had over a dozen radio dramas produced for the CDs, Tall Tales for the Road, and Oscars Hijack, both now out of print. His fervent hope is that his next ambulance driver doesn't take the scenic route. Agreed, Mr. Lowe. And same goes for the psychologist. Thanks, Jonathan. 
And for our second story tonight, we've got our good pal Aaron Fleck, whom you can find on numerous episodes of this program, including Season 1's Bad Juju and last season's Episodes 7 and 16. In this one, we join Johnny, a reflective tale about the power of belief. So, without further delay, and sorry for all the delay, folks, I know some of you highfalutin' salary earners don't understand getting paid by the hour. Knocking off early ain't exactly an option, and no one wants to listen to me taking executive lunch break. So if I get a little wordy here and there, keep in mind we're all here for words, and there are worse things to be delayed by. So like I said, without any delay at all, I give you from author Aaron Vleck, The Roadman. Every summer back when I was a kid, our family would pack up and hit the road, traveling from California to Pennsylvania to visit my mom's family. We were the typical unit, mom and dad and three brothers, Jake and Jerry, and me, Johnny, the kid brother, five years the younger. Jake and Jerry were just a year apart, so they usually hunted as a pack, and I was the whole menu. Most of it was good, clean fun of the typical sort you find among precocious siblings, looking back anyways. Like all big brothers, mine perfected the art of spotting whatever could be used to get my goat, work me up, or get me to start bawling. Whenever they found one of these little gold mines, they worked it mercilessly until the vein dried up and they were forced to move on for greener grass elsewhere in my tender young psyche. One thing that never did fail with me, one vein that never did dry up, was the roadman. I never heard much about the roadman except when we were actually on the road, and even then Jake and Jerry saved any talk of his exploits for the desert where they said he lived. For the long open road between cities and towns that was his territory the place where he hunted anybody stupid enough to try making a run for it across the desert after dark. Then I heard all the usual stuff about kids like me being kidnapped and carried off into the night where their parents would never find them. Sometimes the stories about the roadman had him even roasting the kid alive over a campfire and eating them whole or forcing him to work long back-breaking hours in some unlit subterranean caverns, mining God knows what abominable substance or toxic mineral. Like I said, the usual bullshit. The first time I heard about the road man, I must have been about five or six. We were driving late at night and I was just minding my own business when I noticed Jake and Jerry were strangely quiet. I looked at them and Jake, the oldest, started whispering in Jerry's ear. They both started snickering and of course I wasn't going to be left out, so I demanded to know what they were talking about. Jake took an exaggerated gulp of air and grimaced, jerking his thumb toward the back window. He said he thought he had seen the roadman coming up behind us about a mile back, saw his headlights and they were closing fast. My mom shot Jake a look over the seat and glared, saying I was too damn young for that nonsense and they'd better knock it off. That shut them right up, but they still kept glancing out the back window and then nervously at each other. That was the last I heard of it until the next year when we were back on the highway heading east, but I sure as hell hadn't forgotten about what had my brother spooked and made my mom hush them up. The next year, sure enough, we're on the road late at night. My mom was asleep and my brothers were staring out the rear window at the road swallowed up in complete darkness behind us like it ceased to exist. Across one particularly long stretch I started to feel kinda weird. There was nothing but a wall of black on either side of the road and everything beyond the highway seemed to have vanished. There wasn't another car in sight. No signs, nothing, and I was hoping we'd come to a gas station, anything where there'd be people around, something to break this monotonous emptiness. Then, just up ahead, I saw a light, and my heart jumped with relief, praying it was a gas station or roadside diner. 
My dad usually stopped every chance he got to stretch his legs and grab some coffee. I hadn't realized just how nervous I was until I saw that light. In another minute we reached it and my heart sank and I almost gasped in despair. It was just a sign, an advertisement with some reflectors on it, not even a real light that would have meant there was a town nearby. Even at a distance it had caught our headlights and allowed me the deluded hope of a bustling roadside oasis with cars and happy travelers kids running around, and hopefully a cold case where I could grab a great knee-high out of the freezing water while my dad shot the breeze for a few minutes with the clerk. But no, that was just too much to hope for when you're just a kid on the road in the middle of the night. So on we drove, but I noticed the way Jake and Jerry looked at that sign, the way their eyes followed it as we sped past. They'd fallen for the cruel trick as much as I had, I felt like I'd been intentionally tricked, like something was playing with me, was somewhere out there in the darkness laughing at me. From then on, those reflectors always had a kind of sinister sheen to them, and I hated the sight of them. A bit later, I heard Jerry whispering and trying to wake Jake up. Mom was snoring. I looked at Jerry, and he just mouthed, Roadman. But I could see he was really scared, and not just faking it to get me going, so we all looked out the back window, and I got up on my knees to see better. There was a pair of headlights on the road behind us getting bigger by the second. I told myself it was just another car, but was afraid my older brothers knew better than I about this stuff. A couple of minutes later, the car caught up to us. It was a dirty yellow convertible with fins and the top down. I looked to see who was driving, figuring it was probably just some family like us. Dad at the wheel and a mom asleep with some kids dozing in the back. But no, it was just a guy. I could see that as he passed us. He didn't look our way, but he looked like a cowboy. Taking a few seconds too long to clear our car, he finally pulled ahead and then floored it. In a few seconds, he was gone, and I felt my shoulders and stomach relax. Every year from then on, it was the same thing. We'd pass through that one stretch of desert, and there'd be no one around for hours. Then some lights would appear behind us. Soon, they'd overtake us and speed off down the road. But I was always scared shitless when I saw those same headlights, every damn time. I was always on my knees at that back window, on the lookout for anything that might try and gain on us or catch us. My heart would pound in my chest so hard I couldn't decide if I wanted my dad to speed up so he could outrun those damn lights, or slow down so they could catch up and move on as soon as possible. The summer of my 11th birthday, I was watching the lights as they closed the distance between us. Every mile or so, there was a dip in the road where the lights would disappear, and then appear again in a few seconds. One time, as the lights disappeared, I waited for them to reappear again, but they didn't. They were just... gone. The thing was, there were no roads or turnoffs on this desolate stretch. If whoever it was had pulled off the road and turned into the desert itself, we would have still seen their lights, but those lights were gone. About an hour later, more lights, the same ones or different I couldn't tell, appeared behind us and started closing in fast. It could have been the same car. Maybe he just pulled over for a few minutes of sleep, but I didn't really think that was it at all. Soon, the car caught up with us and pulled up alongside. It was the yellow convertible with fins and the top down. I couldn't believe it. A little part of me said it was just some local guy, the same guy we had seen years back. I brushed that idea off with a sneer. My heart felt like a caged animal gone wild, and it was all I could do to get a breath. When the car was alongside us, the guy turned and looked right at me. I swear we had eye contact as he grinned at me and then roared off. He disappeared for a second into a dip in the road. The thing is though, he never reappeared. 
and no lights turned off into the desert. Even my dad mentioned it, saying it was the damnedest thing. Where'd that guy go? That kind of stuff. That experience sort of ripped the lid off some part of me so deep inside I never really knew existed before. I was starting to suspect something because of the way I always felt out on that road whenever I saw those lights behind us, and how many more times than not it was a yellow convertible with fins and the top down, and hardly ever a car with a mom and dad and some kids in the back. Nobody said anything about it, and I was too scared to bring it up, still hoping it was just the kid's overactive imagination. I still always loved going on road trips, but I dreaded the long runs through that particular stretch of desert. Eventually, Jake went off to college and stopped going on family vacations. Then it was just Jerry and me staring out the back window, watching, almost hoping we'd see those damn lights so we could get it over with. Like the time that yellow convertible caught up with us and passed us by and disappeared down the road, and then about 15 minutes later, he passed us again. A few miles later, that car was stopped, and the driver was just standing there with his thumb out like he had a flat or something and wanted a lift. I prayed my dad would just sell on past and not stop. This was long before cell phones, and my dad said he'd never pick up hitchhikers with mom and us kids in the car. When we hit the next town, he'd send somebody back from a gas station. Maybe the fella'd get a pickup by some trucker on his own. The thing was, though, we passed the guy again about ten miles up the road walking back the way he'd come. But there had been no other cars for someone to have given him a ride. Then the lights appeared behind us and he passed us going so fast I could hardly make out the car. But it was him all right. It was that same guy. That was the last year Jerry went with us. He'd moved in with Katie and they started taking their own vacations. So I was on my own with the folks apparently clueless up in the front seat. My mom always slept through the desert so she never saw anything anyway. My dad sure did because he often said it seemed strange. But he'd always shake his head and pull out the thermos of coffee and take a few swigs and say no more about it. The last few times I went on vacation with the folks before I moved out on my own was just more of the same. I was still terrified every time I saw those lights behind us on the road, and I felt like we had to outrun them, stay ahead of them, not let them catch up or catch us. I couldn't really make sense of it. No doubt there was something weird out there on that highway. The way it made me feel... The way I always saw that same grimy cowhand in his beat-up old yellow convertible with the top down. It had to be just some local dude, right? Kids have pretty powerful imaginations and my brothers had really done a number on me with that roadman shit. But the thing was, whoever it was, he never did anything but drive up and down the road and stare at us. Stare at me, mostly. It was just some guy, had to be. Whatever. It was the fear that filled in all the blanks and made me know I never wanted that guy to catch up with us. I vowed never to drive past dark through the desert when I was out on my own, not on that stretch of road. I never forgot about the road man, even when I went off to college and moved out into the world of my own adventures. I could never get a straight answer out of Jerry and Jake about whether they had made up the whole roadman thing to scare me or if they had heard about it someplace else. They seemed kind of weird about it, and by now Jake had little Jake and didn't want me talking about that stuff in front of the boy. But the thing was still always kind of fresh with me because I didn't quite know what to make of the roadman and his antics. It was like I always had one foot anchored right back there in those days. Oddly enough, I didn't do much to try and shake it off or explain it away either. Five or six years passed and I had my own small business running organic produce all around the southwest, servicing Tex-Mex joints. It was a good job. I loved being on the road and by now I had plenty of friends along the way who'd put me up for the night. It was a sweet gig and I really enjoyed it. One Friday, I got an order from a brand new customer. 
Coyote's Kitchen had heard about me and wanted to give me a try. It was a last-minute rush delivery, and I suspected the folks at Coyote's had come up short with another distributor and called me in a pinch. No problemo. So I loaded up and set out for Prescott, Arizona from my place in Barstow, a trip of about five hours. Anyway, you cut the cards, I wouldn't see Prescott before 2 a.m. I loaded up and set out. It was a nice summer evening and the road was fairly empty. I was making good time, so I stopped off at a roadside gas stop, the kind that has hot snacks and damn good coffee in half a dozen flavors. So I fueled up, filled my travel thermos, and grabbed a handful of Slim Jims and something that was mostly sugar. It was around midnight when it hit me that I hadn't seen another car in over an hour, and there were no roadside stops on this leg of the local state highway like there are out on the big interstates. I chuckled. It was a lot like the stretch of highway where I used to see what my brothers and I called the roadman back when we were kids. I glanced over my shoulder a few times and kept one eye on the road and the other glued to the rearview mirror. Force of habit in familiar territory, I guess. A while later, movement caught my attention to my left. I jerked my head and saw a car right beside me, passing so fast all I could see was a blur as I shook my head in shock and slammed on the brakes. I must have dozed off for a second and hadn't seen him until he was right on top of me and then he sped off and left me in his dust. That was a wake-up call. Like my dad before me, I picked up my coffee thermos, but it was long empty. About half an hour later, I saw headlights on the road behind me. The back of my neck prickled, and I unconsciously shoved my foot against the accelerator. The guy, gal, or whoever was really traveling because they caught up just a little too fast. As he whizzed past, I saw unbelievably that it was a yellow convertible with fins, top down and a cowboy looking guy, the very same cowboy looking guy, touching the brim of his hat and grinning as he sped past. I almost lost it at that point, but why really? Clearly this kind of guy is a classic around here and they always seem to have old cars. Either that or I was hallucinating. Whatever, I was wide awake with eyes on the road from then on, which was good because when I saw more headlights behind me, I almost crapped myself. When they disappeared behind the dip in the road, I wasn't all that surprised when they didn't reappear at the next rise. Nor was I surprised when five miles later, I saw the convertible stop by the side of the road, the driver thumbing for a lift. I was thoroughly shit-shanked, but again, not exactly surprised, and I kept on going. I looked at my watch. It was 1.30. I'd been flooring it for the last few miles and had to start seeing signs for to turn off to Prescott any time now. That's when my tire blew, and I fishtailed off the road into the dirt in a cloud of dust and just sat there rocking back and forth for a few seconds. Being the idiot that I am, my spare was in the back all right, but it was flat from the last roadside mishap, and I'd been too lazy to get it repaired. I just sat there for a few minutes. How many miles to the next gas station? There was nothing as far as I could see, no lights off in the distance toward the mountains on either side of the road that might mean there was a ranch nearby, or even a shack where a solitary range hand might be on night watch. Nothing. So I got out and started walking down the road. I'd gone about a mile when I saw lights coming up behind me. I shuddered to think, but relaxed when a station wagon drove past and slowed down. I stuck out my thumb, but the mom at the wheel just shrugged and pointed at the back, which was full of kids. Then she sped on and disappeared into the night. I couldn't blame her. So I kept walking. Miserable that I would be leaving a new client in the lurch. I was hoping to still see a ride come by. Maybe a guy in a pickup who'd take a chance so I could get to a station and call the folks at Coyote Kitchen to say I was going to be late. That's when I saw something up ahead in the middle of the road. Sometimes you saw cows just standing there. 
Not at night, usually, but a stray might wander off and get confused in the dark. Or it could have been an accident. If it was, I knew it must be pretty bad because no one was moving. It was no cow, and it was no accident either. It was a yellow convertible with the top down parked across the narrow highway. The long, lean driver was braced against the hood, arms crossed over his chest, just staring in my direction like he was waiting for me. I slowed but kept on walking. It was the old cowhand, the same guy I'd seen all those times on vacation with my folks. He was worse for the wear, dark with dust and road grime, and more weathered than I'd remembered. As I got closer, he opened up a wide, toothy grin and waved to me. Hey, Johnny. I've been waiting for you. I was just about to give up hope. <laughs> he added with a roar of laughter and then spit something out onto the ground. I slowed again but kept on walking, my arms dangling like dead weight at my sides. There was nowhere else to go and I was like a man sleepwalking or staggering drunk. As soon as I got up to him, he put his arm over my shoulders and we started walking. The cowboy started talking, and all I could do was listen. Yeah, Johnny, I've been waiting a long time for you to come by again. I saw you back then with your folks. Sure I did. We walked out into the desert, and he just kept talking. Your ma always slept along that road, didn't she? She didn't want to see me, but she knew I was there. And your pa, him too. He even said so, didn't he? Yeah, but he always pushed it aside, saying I was just his imagination. Those brothers of yours, Jake and Jerry, they used to believe, I guess. Wanted to believe. But then they got too damn full of themselves like your dad. Told themselves I was just bunk. Stuff to scare little kids. I sure scared you, didn't I, Johnny? All I could do was nod. The cool night air settled on me and I started to shiver. But it was something more than just that. Yeah. But you, Johnny, you believed in me right away. You always did. And you saw me, too. Saw me fool in the face. Locked me square in the eyes. That means a lot, he said, pointing to his own eyes with two fingers. Not like your brothers who only saw me out of the corner of their eye. Pretty sure they saw something, but no damn idea what the hell it was. But you, Johnny. You saw. You knew. Hell, you believed. He fell silent then, and we just kept walking. <laughs> and I've been waiting for you to come back by ever since. You see, Johnny, it's time for me to move on, you know? Goodbye, Johnny. I always knew you'd come back this way one day. The road stretches out ahead of me far as the eye can see. There must be 50 miles either way before you come to any town or gas station. It's just two empty lanes of tarmac in the middle of a sea of gray desert from horizon to horizon. I've been on this run now for many years. Can't remember exactly how many, but I know it's a lot. My folks are long dead now, of course. Jake and Jerry, too, I suppose. I'd never see them again anyway, things being what they are. It's dark now, but then it always is, here on this stretch of the highway. Up ahead, a car comes into view, and I floor the accelerator of my delivery van. I come up alongside that car pretty quick, and I see a kid in the back seat, on his knees, Eyes glued to the back window and a look of sheer terror and something else. Curiosity, maybe, on his face. When I pass by, I grin at that kid and touch the brim of my hat so he knows I'm real. 
so he'll remember me in the days and years to come. I see his mouth making words at me through the window. The road man, his silent lips gasp in my direction, and I nod and wave. That's right, kid. I am the road man. For now. And that was The Roadman by author Aaron Vleck. A good reminder to keep your eyes focused on the road ahead. Spend too much time peeking into the dark, and you risk becoming a part of it. A little about the author. Ms. Aaron Vleck is a storyteller whose work focuses primarily on the trickster as bringer of delight and proponent of disquieting humors. Many of her short stories delve into the original tales of the djinn and a universal imagining of the Native American coyote. Some works are historical and setting, while others hail from the contemporary and urban landscape. She indulges more and more in the reimagining of classic themes of Lovecraftian horror and has a keen fondness for the occult detective. Erin is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, where she spent most of her time writing. Her work has appeared in many places around the net, including Ghostly Tales Podcast, The Wicked Library, Nocturnal Transmissions, and Creeperoni, as well as in numerous anthologies. She was shortlisted for a Parsi Award and appeared on Ellen Datlow's recommended reading list a few years ago. If you're interested in some more Aaron Vleck, you can visit her website at erinvleck.wordpress.com where she's got a number of stories you can listen to and even more at her podcast series, The Private Collector, which you can find on thewickedlibrary.com. Click on Seasons and scroll down to The Private Collector. Thanks as always, Erin. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens, by the way. So feel free to accidentally subscribe as many times as you want. I won't tell anyone, I promise. And if you feel like spreading the word and helping old Drew Blood out and convincing a friend or two to subscribe to my podcast, that would help me out greatly, and I'd really appreciate it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other podcast episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at chillintalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program and all our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook and Instagram, and sometimes Twitter. Sometimes. And remember, we're accepting submissions. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on this show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment. afraid this is where we part ways, at least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, friend. But if anybody blows you by out there, don't pay too much attention. It's probably just some kid testing out his new pantyhose air filter. This week I got a special send-off. I'd like to give a special hello to Mr. Richard Kettle. Mr. Kettle made a generous donation to Old Drew Blood this week, and I really appreciate it more than he knows. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Richard. Keep on rocking it out there in China, bud. And I have a special send-off to all the fellas who up until yesterday were my co-workers. That's right. 
Old Drew Blood has gone pro. Look out, y'all. So, Tim, you take care of yourself, bud, and keep believing in yourself. I do, and it was a pleasure knowing you. And, Billy, you keep giving Tim hell. <laughs> Steve Hologram and Jaime, you two don't fight over my truck now. Y'all can take turns. And, Justin, remember what I said, brother. Just stay safe out there. I wish you all the best. Ramalama Ding Dong, Steve, and Pete, it was a pleasure knowing y'all. I'll miss you, pinche cabron pendejos. Scotty, don't take those bugs home with you now. And Roberto, I said something to you a couple weeks ago, prick. I hope you were listening. <laughs> and I'm dedicating this episode to the memory of Paul Garcia, best boss I ever worked for. Rest in peace, friend. So, to Mr. Richard Kettle and all the crazy bastards at work, may the wind be at your back and may the road rise up to meet you. Let's do it again next week, shall we? Till then, y'all go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Good night, y'all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.